0: Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, friends. I hope you'll take your seats. Good evening. No ice storm in Atlanta in July. And no other storm events, we're pretty sure. So we're so glad you could make it. My name is Karen Ryan. I'm the Senior Advisor for Human Rights here at the Carter Center. And I welcome students, donors, neighbors, guests from UNC Chapel Hill, and our online audience. Uh, The Conversations at the Carter Center series gives us an opportunity to discuss Carter Center initiatives and world issues with our neighbors here in the Atlanta area and around the world and we encourage you to learn more about it at cartercenter.org/conversations and tonight's event will be broadcast on the web at cartercenter.org and archived for later viewing like other forms of art film has a way of opening our hearts and our minds by illuminating larger social challenges through the telling of human stories that exist within that larger context. Tonight we have the opportunity to experience a number of intersecting stories. The all too common problem of the abuse of state power and the consequences when those abuse power and exploit fear for political purposes. Individual stories of victims of state violence but matched by individual stories of heroic action by individuals inside and outside government. And for those of us in the United States, the potential for U.S. leadership when our president and his or her, one day, representatives set their mind to advancing the values of human freedom that we want to believe are at the very core of who we are as a nation. The film Search for Identity, Reflections on Human Rights Abuses During Argentina's Dirty War, will open tonight's program and will then be followed by what promises to be a fascinating panel discussion. After the film, our panelists will come immediately to the stage, led by Dr. Jennifer McCoy, The director of our Americas program here at the Carter Center and she will be joined by a wonderful panel with whom I will introduce now so we don't have to take the time then to do it. You also have bios on your chairs for our panelists uh, but we noticed that there's one bio missing which I will read here um, in more detail so that you know more about this very important individual. First of course former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who laid out his vision for a robust foreign policy with human rights at its center, and who said this in his inaugural address in 1977. Ours was the first society openly to define itself in terms both of, of both spirituality and human liberty. It is that unique self-definition which has given us an exceptional appeal, but it also imposes on us a special obligation to take on those moral duties which, when assumed, seem invariably to be in our own best interests. The military coup in Argentina was one of the first tests of this ideal which he had set before the nation at that time. Our other panelists include Dr. Charlie Tuggle from the University of North Carolina and is UNC's Reese Feltz Distinguished Professor. F. Alan Tex Harris was a Foreign Service Officer in Argentina at the height of the, cold, dirt, the Dirty War, the Cold War and the Dirty War. Uh, Robert Bob Cox is a British journalist and was editor of Buenos Aires Herald. He reported on kidnappings, torture and the murder of thousands of Argentines by the military government, and he himself was detained in 1977. Uh, And Hodding Carter, I'm going to read his full bio because, or a longer bio, because it's missing in your handout, uh, is an American journalist and politician. He was the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs during the Carter administration. Uh, Princeton University graduate, 1957, summa cum laude served in the United States Marine Corps for two years, a Delta Democrat Times reporter in 1959, and won the Sigma Delta Chi National Professional Journalism Society Award in 1961, and was a leader of the civil rights movement, co-chairing the loyal Democrats of Mississippi, and worked on Lyndon B. Johnson and Jimmy Carter's campaign. And... When I spoke with Hodding earlier, he insisted that I say, most importantly, he is here representing his wife, Pat Darian, who could not be with us tonight. Although she can't be here in person, we honor Pat Darian, who served as Assistant Secretary of State during the period of time that's examined in the film, and you will see her in the film. She led the Carter Administration's human rights policy, and we cannot ever forget that Pat showed through her example, how to be both determined and very practical when working for human rights inside the government. And I ask you to enjoy our program this evening.
1: In the mid-70s, Argentina was chaotic. In 1976, following a series of uprisings, the military staged a coup and ousted Isabel Perón. Army General Jorge Videla became de facto president.
2: The takeover that took place in, uh, in March of 76 by the Argentine military was, was really seen by most Argentines as a relief from the chaos left by the Peronist regime. Peron had died, his wife, whose principal advisor was an astrologer, was running the country into the ground.
3: The military came in, and to begin with, everybody thought that everything would be okay. The military would do what they'd done in the past, is, is sort of paint things nicely, and get things running again, and call elections, and then democracy would return. And hopefully it would be better this time. But of course, this time the military came in with an agenda, and the agenda really was to wipe out the left. What happened here was a consequence of the revolutionary process that was poured on Latin America
2: and was directed by the government of Fidel Castro in Cuba. The role of the military in the 70s was to preserve the Constitution, to preserve the electoral majority decision, because it was the constitutional government that ordered the armed forces to suppress
4: terrorism.
5: Not only in Argentina, but in all Latin America, a guerrilla movement had begun, supported by countries like Russia, Cuba, and others. In 1970, the violence was so bad that in Congress, both representatives and senators asked that a problem they couldn't solve by themselves be taken care of. The democratic government of the time granted the military forces the power to intervene and annihilate annihilate the guerrillas in all of the country. delitos cometidos desde el estado Crimes
6: committed by the state cannot be compared to any other actions or procedures. They are not comparable to the actions of the revolutionary organizations or guerrillas that operated during this historical period. The state that uses all its institutions to repress its citizens and commit crimes cannot be compared to any other proceedings.
2: The problem in Argentina was that once you start the killing machine, The forces continue moving, and they just go after softer and softer targets. They saw themselves strategically involved in what they called World War III, which was a fight between global communism and Christian Western civilization. It was not only Terrorism, which is putting a bomb or shooting someone or other act of violence or planning act of violence, but it was also a question of eradicating
7: wrong thinking. And one of the forms of destruction which they felt justified and which were tolerated for a while was essentially the mass arrest and disappearing of people who, in the instance of most of them, were simply uh, unfortunately Jews, or unfortunately dissident voices, unfortunately almost anything except the hard left killer types. It's just that they couldn't stop. It was like the tapeworm. It started eating, and the next thing you knew, they were devouring everything that seemed to be even loosely uh, subversive.
1: And incidentally, subversive is their word. Of the estimated 30,000 people kidnapped, tortured, and murdered, some 500 were new mothers or women who gave birth in the detention centers. Las Abuelas de Plaza de Maggio, or the Grandmothers of May Plaza, have been looking for those lost grandchildren ever since.
8: The
6: Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo are the result and the answer to one of the most sinister methodologies implemented by the military dictatorship in Argentina, which was the kidnapping of babies. Besides the forced disappearance of people, that is the massive kidnapping of demonstrators. They would take possession of their children, in some cases of babies that had already been born, and in other cases of mothers who were pregnant, who had their babies in captivity, and these babies remained in the hands of military personnel or with families linked to the military forces. (laughs)
9: My dad worked in the state telephone company. The military went directly to where he worked and they captured him when he went out. After that they went to the house in which he lived with my mom and they captured her too. When I was born I stayed with my mom for only 20 days. Then I was given to another family. There are no traces of my mom, the same as every pregnant woman and most of the people who went through that detention center. She's disappeared, the same as my dad. They would wait there for them to have their babies. In this case, they waited for my mom to have me, so we could be given to military families who would steal our identities from us and who tried to delete any traces so our biological families couldn't find us. I was raised with a family involved with state terrorism, a family where the man who said he was my father My fake father was a member of the intelligence service of the federal police. During those 26 years in which I lived with a false identity, I had many uncertainties, emotional instabilities, and at some point I started to try and figure out why I was so anguished, so depressed, so emotionally unstable. So then I started to ask myself if I was or wasn't a child of these people. Plus I knew this man's involvement in state terrorism and during my youth I began to have access to books and knowledge about how the state terrorism had worked during those years. Then I started to think that I might be the child of one of the disappeared. I had to take a DNA analysis. I got the test and after six months of comparing my genetic results with those of people who were looking for family, grandparents who were looking for their grandchildren, in March 2004 I had proof that I wasn't part of this family, that I was the son of two disappeared people, and that my family was looking for me, that my grandparents were looking for me. The right to identity is a right everybody has. We all have the need to know who our parents are, what our name is, and to be raised and developed with our parents. Therefore, to know our identity is a step toward truth and accomplishing those rights. Ultimately, if I hadn't found the truth, I would still be in a sea of doubt, of uncertainty. So it was an extra happy moment to know my origins, the triumph of truth, and to meet my family.
1: Estela De Carlotto has been part of the Grandmothers of May Plaza since 1978. She believes her daughter, Laura, died in a prison camp the previous year. De Carlotto immediately began searching for the son Laura had in captivity.
8: The grandmothers adopted the form of a very quiet, very respectful search because we were looking for little ones, children. Then we didn't know where they were. The task was a detective's task, a search for facts to see where they were.
10: They weren't anything else but housewives, accustomed to working at home and taking care of their families. They had to convert into promoters of peace, promoters of democracy.
1: Families sympathetic to the military took their grandchildren and changed everything about their identities.
8: Un delito grave. Stealing babies is a crime, a grave crime of humanity. Time doesn't solve it. It affects not only that person, but their biological parents and society. Every time
2: a grandchild is found, it reinvigorates all the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo.
4: Para la abuela es un
8: momento de una emoción tremenda. For the grandma, it's a moment with tremendous excitement because she's found what she's been looking for for so many years. And furthermore, they look like her son or daughter. The response of the child is of pain, shock, when they find out that their father and mother were not their real parents, that they had other parents, that they had another grandmother looking for them. There are some grandmas that are 90 years old some of us are younger, some have died, others are sick. Today the there is not one single grandma. This institution will be in the hands of the grandchildren.
11: Everything started with Oscars, my father, disappearance, in 1976. A few months later, my mother disappeared too. My sister and I witnessed her kidnapping at a park. Military men, dressed in green, came toward us while my mother hugged us, like she was saying goodbye. I didn't understand why. She tried to protect us by walking away from us while they chased her so they wouldn't see us. Because if not, we would all have been kidnapped. From there on, our lives changed. We were supposedly abandoned in the streets. That's why the court intervened and sent us to an orphanage because we didn't have a family. I say this ironically because we did have a family, but they were kidnapped. I was three and a half years old at the time, and my sister was a little baby.
1: Charles and Agnes Cefiligoy arranged to adopt Tatiana's sister.
11: My mother asked who I was, and an employee told her, don't say anything, but that's your baby's sister. My mom stared at her and said, what? She has a sister? It was a strange situation. Well, she said both girls are coming home. They're sisters. Eventually, the story of us being found in a park did not convince my mother. She thought it was strange. She asked the judge three times if we didn't have a family what happened to our parents. Three times the judge answered, Ma'am, these girls do not have a family. Stop asking. So she took this and never asked again until the abuelas appeared in 1980 claiming they were looking for me. So they went to court with a picture and proved that it was us. Not a long time had passed, so we looked the same. Both families got to know each other and realized that there was no intention of hiding my story or lying to me. We weren't some war prize. We weren't being disputed. Someone to be fought for.
1: Because of what she experienced, Tatiana decided to study psychology.
11: That is when they called me and said, Well, Tati, let's see if you can give us a hand, because you have to know how to deal with kids who aren't kids anymore. They are teenagers, they are young men who have doubts, and we don't know how to help them psychologically. The son of Abel Madariaga, grandchild 101, said, it took me 10 years to go to Abuelas. With that, he was preparing for that moment. It was a crisis he saw coming. He knew there was going to be an abrupt change, that there were going to be new things that there was going to be a new family. They find out, as grown-ups, that they're not children from the people who raised them, who told them they were their parents. And right there, the trust you had for years in these people is broken. They were lied to. They were told they were their parents. Afterward, for that person to trust somebody is so hard your goal is to try to understand where you come from and there are people who don't get this they say that's the past you need to forget about it you need a clean slate there are people that still think that everyone should forget about it but we can't forget about it because it's not resolved
1: following a return to democracy and the healing only time can bring much has changed for her and others affiliated with las abuelas At the country's bicentennial celebration, a booth set up by the Abuelas attracted thousands of visitors openly interested in the group's work.
8: If we go back to the beginning of our fight, nobody knew us and they rejected us. They didn't comprehend. They didn't understand and they were afraid. Today there is no fear.
11: 15 years ago, to say you were from abuelas or madres was socially like, oh no, it's better if you don't say that just in case. Nowadays, you can say you were from that institution and nothing on the contrary. Sometimes they say, that's good and what can I do to help them?
1: Some claim the military leaders at the time of the Dirty War were upright and humane and cannot be held responsible for the excesses of a few rogue elements of the armed forces.
6: The persecution of militants, the kidnapping of a generation, the appropriation of their children, and even the kidnapping of those who looked for them because mothers of May Plaza who were looking for their children or family members of missing people also disappeared. Having all this in mind, one realizes it wasn't about sporadic excesses, but rather that it was all part of a systematic plan.
4: Where could we go to report? To the judicial power that was totally dominated by the government? To the policemen, who did nothing to stop the illegal forces of the state from kidnapping and killing us? We didn't know what to do.
8: Most of the time, there was silence. And for convenience, questions weren't
6: asked. Everyone knew someone who had been abducted, either in the neighborhood or a friend of a friend or a friend's relative, but you wouldn't talk about it.
12: The father would always be concerned about, look, you're making a lot of fuss, maybe he'll come back, maybe they'll let him go. I have to keep my job. We have other children. If we make a lot of noise about this child that's been taken away from us, maybe they'll come and take our other children as well.
2: If you look at the numbers, there were a few hundred military and police officials who were killed and there were 13 to 30,000 people killed
3: on the other side. That isn't a war, that's a slaughter. There were war crimes committed by both sides. What is quite clear, however, is that there is no possible justification for what the military did. There was the knock on the door at three o'clock in the morning. Sometimes the door was just knocked down or blown down with a bomb. And people were taken off and they stole and they
1: robbed and they raped. Many of the prisoners wound up in the Navy Mechanic School, known across Argentina as ESMA.
10: During this military period, 5,000 young people were here. Their average age was less than 25 years old. Fewer than 200 survived the torture and assassinations committed here.
13: To do that terrible things to other human beings is necessary to deprive them of their human condition. They treated their prisoners as subhumans not even as animals, because they were more compassionate with animals than
1: they were with their prisoners. And worst of all, according to those involved in the human rights community, members of the military stole the babies of their enemies.
13: Dad and mommy were tortured and killed, and the baby was given in a fake adoption to a a colonel of the army.
1: Even with an external enemy, if you read the Geneva Conventions or the International Humanitarian Law from the Red Cross, nothing authorizes someone to steal children away. There was
2: no systematic theft of babies. There were only 10 cases, maybe 11, of
5: people who kept the babies because they saw them homeless after a fight. In such cases, it was an act of love. When they couldn't find somebody to take care of those children, they handed them over to some known family which they knew could take good care of them. So they intended to protect these children, not kidnap them.
9: Some of the appropriators tried to present their behavior, saying they save these kids from abandonment, when the reality is most of them are responsible for the deaths of these kids' parents.
1: Victoria Donda, found grandchild number 78, bristles at two charges made by those who still support the former government. First, that the grandmothers and their supporters rigged the DNA results, and second, that the majority of the found grandchildren are actors paid to claim their children of the disappeared.
11: Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous to argue with these people. It's as if I tried to have a conversation with someone who denies the Holocaust. You can't discuss things with these people. These people justify the most outrageous horrors of history.
1: As international media outlets began to pick up the story of the mothers and the grandmothers, three people not native to the country emerged as critical players in the struggle. Buenos Aires Herald editor Bob Cox, U.S. Embassy officer Tex Harris, and assistant human rights secretary for the Carter administration, Pat Darian. Cox and his family eventually had to flee the country when continued threats convinced him of the military's plans for Argentina.
3: Taking it over... And redoctrinating the country according to their extreme right wing views, ultra Catholic, intolerant, and after all, completely inhuman.
2: I was the reporter on the ground as a diplomat, uh, sending back information to Washington on the human rights abuses that were taking place uh, throughout Argentina. Over a period of time, we had a kind of temperature chart of the operational capacity of the Argentine clandestine program, which I then reported to Washington. Previous to this, what countries did internally was no one's business but their own. It was not the business of diplomacy. So the efforts that were begun during the Carter administration, spearheaded by Pat Darien, really changed the fabric and the texture of the practice
7: of diplomacy as we know it today. She was the first person from the outside world of the United States who came in and said to government and everybody else that what was going on in the dirty war was unacceptable, that it violated national and international norms, and that the United States no longer felt that to be a tolerable exercise of power by
1: the Junta. That message was decidedly different from the approach of the previous Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Who watched the 1978 World Cup in Buenos Aires with Junta leader Jorge Videla. They had been assured by a number of people in the
7: American government that they were doing what America wanted them to do, crushing these left-wingers, crushing the possibility of
1: commies taking over Martin Anderson first reported about Kissinger having given the green light to generals in this 1987 article in The Nation. Carlos Osorio at the National Security Archive in Washington, with help from students from the College of William & Mary, has uncovered a number of documents indicating the U.S. government, prior to the Carter administration, winked at what the regime was doing. Henry Kissinger,
7: in dealing with governments before he dealt with them, knew what it was that our intelligence services knew. Our intelligence services knew to the last drop of a sparrow what the Argentinian regime was doing.
1: And so did Pat Darien. She recalls the attempts at intimidation from the Argentina military.
8: He said, you know, you better be careful. This is dangerous. And I said, well, of course it is. And you don't know how dangerous it is for you.
7: Sometimes I think the ones who were most outraged by her were not foreigners, but people within our own government.
8: One or two of my sort of counterparts and other parts of the government uh, called me. I said, don't call me again, leave me alone, I'm doing my job, plank.
1: That job was to let dictators and despots know about a change in what had been U.S. policy
2: nations who are shoulder to shoulder with the united states are our friends in the fight against
1: godless communism even if they repress their own citizens to a new and decided emphasis on human rights starting in argentina with las madres las abuelas and hundreds of missing grandchildren
14: Imagine meeting with your biological father and brother when you're 29. In my case, I lived all my life as an only child, all that time, those 29 years, as an only child. If the truth means that you're going to be poorer than before, or you have to resign some things, maybe it hurts, or that something happens to your child or someone you love. There are some realities that do hurt. But I think that it's in this context I prefer the truth rather than not having it. And although it's something that generates sadness, anger and different feelings, I prefer this reality to the one they made
1: me believe. His mother, Hilda, gave birth to Pedro in a detention center. Pedro's biological father, Jorge Nadal, spent five years in jail, four more in exile, and 30 years looking for Pedro. I dedicated time every day to him, thinking about him and looking for him as if he were alive until the day we found him. It was magnificent. The place where we had our first contact was at his workplace. I pretended to be a mailman. I saw him and said, hello, I have this letter and the company told me to give it to you by hand. He was a little surprised by this because it's not normal. But it gave me a moment to see him face to face. It allowed me to see that it was him. He looked similar to his brother and anthropologically had very similar features. I was sure it was him. I said, thank you very much, and left. Pedro was 29 at the time. The DNA tests confirm he is the son of Jorge and Hilda. I
14: met with my biological family, and at that time I learned about my disappeared mother, I didn't realize until that moment that I could never meet her or have her with me and never see the grandparents who had died. Sadly, in this case, in my case, my maternal grandmother died a few days, 15 or 20 days, before the DNA came back positive.
1: Pedro had to deal with that sadness and a range of reactions from two groups of people.
14: Within the immediate social group, friends, family and others, there is a division. There are those who say, I see what you have been through and I accompany you. I don't know if they understand you, but at least they accompany you. And there are many others that think you have to be grateful because your appropriators
1: rescued you or they really did you a favor. Pedro and his dad just want to make up for all of the years apart. To recover the time lost, well... I don't think it's possible to recover it, so I propose that I should live many, many more years. Argentine society has been trying to deal with the horrors of the dirty war for nearly four decades. Leon Arslanian was one of the judges who heard charges against the military and condemned the brutal methods of the regime. When young
13: pregnant women had their babies in captivity, Their babies were not given to their grandparents, nor to other family members, but rather were handed to members of the security forces, to policemen or military men who adopted them. And this was a methodology that was repeated in each and every one of these cases.
4: So they wanted to give them good families, Christian military families. These children were treated as war booty.
1: The state exists to protect us and to guarantee that laws are applied, not to commit criminal acts. The grandmothers of the missing babies continue to suffer because of those crimes.
10: They are the victims of the spoils of war, which were their grandchildren. Their sons or daughters were kept alive in captivity until they had their babies and then the babies were taken and their mothers were assassinated along with their fathers
1: some accuse the abuelas and others of selective memory
5: they hide the fact that their sons and daughters were guerrilla members who attacked the government trying to take it over to take the government and rule it with a marxist system as in cuba and russia of that time
12: you could somehow argue and lots of people did that their children were terrorists their children were guerrilla fighters they had in turn you know put bombs you know in military headquarters and killed lots of people in the case of the babies there is no way you could say that they were guilty of absolutely anything while at the B.A. Herald,
1: Gonyi researched the Nazi influence on the dictatorship and says the military had a clear goal
12: in mind when it came to the appropriated children. The most sublime victory for them would be to turn over to their kind of thinking the children, the captured children, of the godless terrorists whom they were fighting against.
8: A baby isn't an enemy, it's a baby. But they stole them. It was done to instill fear for many generations and to demonstrate the power they had over the life of their victim. They tortured, raped, they stole their rights and they robbed even to taking their kids.
2: The mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of people who were disappeared, they, after a time, after a decade, realize that their son or daughter is not coming back.
1: But the grandmothers
2: know that their
1: grandchildren are alive. The grandmothers of May Plaza refuse to be victims, and human rights groups around the world join the fight. Principally because of the cultural cries from
2: the mothers and the grandmothers who were missing their children and their grandchildren. And that was a cry that was heard and understood around the world.
15: driving as usual, and he suddenly stopped. When he stopped the van to tell me all of this, the first thing he did was burst into tears, and then it was as if he switched places, and a whole other person was in front of me. And he said, no, you're not my biological son. You're adopted. And on top of that, you're the son of a disappeared person.
11: not a doubt being adopted
15: and I went from not ever having doubts of being adopted, from not ever feeling different from my family, to being told all of this. I was shocked. Since I was very close back then with my appropriators, it was really difficult for me to get together with my family. I had to go through an entire process to detach from the other family. I had to wait for a trial determination to be able to say, "Okay, this is it for me. I won't be with you people anymore. And no, it wasn't nice at all. And when the trial came to an end, that's when everyone showed their real colors and started telling me, okay, you are the one to blame here. This is your fault. And right there, the truth was disclosed. The truth about who they really are. And every chance of maintaining a relationship with them back then disappeared. One revelation was especially troubling. I say, six months Six months before I was born, they had already selected me. The selection was based on my mother's features, which are the same as the ones of the woman that raised me, my appropriator. They're both French descent, blonde, slim, tall. Matching the features, the selection was all on Ray, and everything fitted together for me to be their son. There were no loose strings.
1: Alejandro has cut all ties with the people he now calls his appropriators, and has built tight bonds with his biological family. His uncle Edgardo first met Alejandro in 2006.
10: At that time, you do not know what to do. You can only embrace, touch, but do not know what to say. Because you want to resolve 30 years there in 30 seconds. But in fact, 30 years is resolved in 30 years. I always said to my children that you have like a brother and one day I'm going to find him. You have to be fully confident that we will succeed. And we did. It cost a lot of time, a lot of pain. But he is here now and he is free. That's the most important thing, isn't it? But there was more. It was also about my sister who had conquered death and defeated her torturers and rapists, the people who murdered her. And it was a moment of a lot of happiness, a lot of hope.
1: Alejandro has also gotten to know his grandmother, Clelia Fontana, a member of Las Abuelas.
4: I have done many things to try to find him. I have traveled to so many places to find news about his whereabouts. We knew that she had a child. When she was in the concentration camp, in the athletic camp, she continued her pregnancy, and she had a baby boy. And we always followed this information, searching for him. Then the judge called us to say that there was a boy, a man really, who was possibly our grandchild. We met each other at the court. It seemed like we were seeing his parents again. He was so similar to my son. To his uncle, it couldn't be denied. It was a very wonderful happiness. Even though I found my grandson, I kept going with the grandmothers to help them find the grandchildren that are still missing. It is something like my daughter is saying, continue mama, continue mama, keep going. I cannot stop going.
1: Even after the return of democracy, some in Argentina continued to deny that kidnappings, torture, murder, and stealing babies ever took place on a systematic basis. Then former Navy officer Adolfo Schillingo admitted that he took part in death flights. And threw drug prisoners out of airplanes into the ocean.
13: The confession of Captain Schillingo had that strong impact in Argentine society. For the first time, one of the military responsible for the crimes admitted to have committed crimes. And then, uh, from this moment on, there was no more two versions of history.
1: In 2005, a Spanish court convicted Chilingo of crimes against humanity. Other former members of the military were hiding in plain sight. Once the dictatorship
12: collapsed, they all started living perfectly normal, law-abiding lives. So what you see is that what's evil actually is the system. If a system is put in place that promotes or allows or condones these kinds of crimes, then the crimes happen. And the people who committed those crimes in the name of protecting the country
1: were continuing to deny any wrongdoing.
7: They will, at end of day, simply say, every bit of evidence out there is a plant. Every bit of information that you've heard is fake. The science is phony science. The people who cry on cue are actors. And you look there and say, who else believes that?
1: Nearly four decades after the fall of the military regime, Argentines continue to struggle with what happened and with the concept of reconciliation.
13: Reconciliation is a religious concept, it's not a a juridical concept. The the perpetrator must be repentant of what he or she has done.
11: How can someone forgive the other when there's still no justice that imparts some kind of penalty or punishment for what has been done? I could not forgive the person who threw my mother alive from an airplane. Could you forgive someone who threw your mother alive from an airplane? I don't know if it's something that can be forgiven. The only thing I'm interested in is that there is justice.
10: If things aren't in their place, we cannot continue walking through the street victims and victimizers, because they're not repentant. They have never demonstrated remorse or stated their regret for what
8: happened. They don't demonstrate any feelings, they don't repent, they don't confess, and more they are convinced that they have saved the country. A person who can torture, who can make another suffer and feel fine, is not a human being.
14: What
1: made the millions of collaborators of the Nazi regime put in practice a massacre of those dimensions? How can an apparently normal person with a family who lives like a normal citizen somehow be a merciless torturer too? Because there are no definitive answers to those questions... Groups such as Amnesty International must continue to fight.
11: I would love to have to close the door to say this world doesn't need Amnesty International anymore. Sadly, I think we're very far from that. It's a very long road and there's still lots to do. But I dream of the day it comes true.
1: Until it does, they will all work to preserve one of the most basic human rights.
10: After the right to life, which is the principal human right, the right to identity is the next one. Because if people don't know who they are, they can't develop their lives fully. I believe the right to identity is essential
1: to being human. And it's the single-mindedness of their dedication to that right that earned the Abuelas UNESCO's 2011 Felix Boigny Peace Prize.
3: In terms of of, of what they've done against enormous difficulties and odds and what they've created is just remarkable.
7: They're a monument to what you think of as the possibilities and the responsibilities and the rights of free people to petition for the redress of grievance over and over and over again.
1: Some say if there is no justice, there can be no peace. But to know justice is to know peace. The fight isn't over, but a former Argentine military officer says if you win the minds of the people, you've won the war. He concedes that the abuelas have won the minds of the people. Thank you.
16: Argentina. I will ask them to stand and face the audience as I introduce them. Dr. Fernando Riatti is professor of Spanish at Georgia State University here in Atlanta. Dr. Riatti was a political prisoner for four years in Córdoba prison. His entire family was detained in 1977, including his high school age little brother. For the first two years, Fernando was held in comunicado and tortured in La Perla, until a visit from Pat Darien led to improved conditions and his eventual release two years later. Daniel Deutsch's parents and three sisters were kidnapped from their home in 1977. Also in Córdoba, the police were actually looking for Daniel, who wasn't there. The family was taken to the same La Perla prison until a presidential interest cable showing the direct interest of the President of the United States was delivered to the generals by the U.S. ambassador and secured their release. We just saw in the film how many people were affected by the human rights abuses and the policies of the Argentine government, and the many who also tried heroically to let the world know about them, from the Abuelas de la Plaza de Mayo to journalists like Martin Anderson. Today, we have four of the principal actors involved in trying to bring international pressure to bear to protect individuals from abuses by their own government. The story is, of course, about the victims, the grandmothers, and the horrors of what was happening under the dictatorship. But it's also about the geopolitical context faced by the Carter administration and how they weighed the desire for a robust human rights policy against the important goal of maintaining alliances in the hemisphere during the Cold War. The Argentine story offers current lessons for the United States today, caught in a new geopolitical struggle against non-state actors that is leading to national security policies that also may violate human rights in new ways. At the same time, we continue to face the same policy dilemma the Carter administration did nearly 40 years ago in dealing with states who abuse the rights of their own citizens but provide essential security cooperation. The Argentine story shows how fear can lead to the excessive use of force and cause human beings to inflict harm on one another. I'd like to start the discussion by asking Charlie Tuggle, the filmmaker, what was the impetus to make this film?
5: In 2002, I had a couple of students who traveled to Argentina, and they were going to do stories for the student newscast about the War. And They got there, they sort of stumbled upon this group of wayless and did some stories that won a National Reporting Award. I started going to teach in the Catholic University every year and became more and more interested in uh, the the country and its culture, its history. After about six or seven such trips, my wife and my daughters, uh, Brittany Bethany, said, Now, why do you get to go? Argentina every year, and we never get to go. So I said, well, come ahead. My younger daughter was a rising senior, also involved in the student newscast at UNC. I said, if you're going to go, do some stories, follow up on Los Angeles. She won a national reporting award. So her older sister said, we've done some good stories, but we've gone about an inch deep in a story that's a mile deep. Why don't we do a family documentary? So we returned in 2010, Uh, myself, my two daughters, a young man who studied with me, and two uh, Argentines who had studied abroad with us at Carolina. So it was a team of six. We uh, started on this project. It grew from a Tuckle family project to a UNC journalism school project to a UNC project. So by the time we were finished, a a whole lot of people were involved in some way in helping to tell this story.
16: Thank you. Wonderful, Phil. Now I'd like to turn to President Carter. I have several questions for you. (laughs) So, to start, thinking in the big picture, what was the overriding geopolitical challenge that you faced when deciding how to approach the military dictatorships in Latin America at that time? And, And specifically, how did you see the Argentine military within this context?
17: Well, it was obvious to me, before I became president, when I was inaugurated, that the people in South America, Central America, were living mostly under military dictatorships. And the disturbing thing was that uh, American officials were in bed with them because they were the ones that controlled the trade and commerce with Latin America where the money came from. And uh, they controlled the bananas, they controlled the pineapple, they controlled the iron and, and so forth. So whenever anybody rose up to question the military dictators, uh, the Americans would uh, protect them, the the dictators. And we would send Marines or Army down to various countries to make sure that the military dictators survived. A lot of those uh, guys had been to West Point and they were new English and they were very uh, uh, eloquent and so forth. And so when you go down around the coast of uh, South America even, including Honduras and uh, El Salvador and others in Central America, when you come to Peru or Ecuador or Chile or Argentina or Uruguay or Paraguay or even Brazil, they were all military dictatorships. And some of them were horribly abusive. I would say that Stresner in Paraguay was very abusive. And obviously the junta the that we've just seen on film in Argentina were abusive. And Pinochet and his associates in uh, Chile were the same. So I had announced, even as uh, in my inaugural address, that human rights would be a basic foundation for our foreign policy. And I also announced and sent a directive that every ambassador that I had on Earth would be my personal human rights representative, and that the, the, the embassy would be a haven for people who were abused. So it was a generic thing that applied to all of Latin America. And the year before I was... Uh, in office and while I was running for office, is when the military junta took over in Argentina in 1976. And I knew that uh, President Nixon and Kissinger were fully supportive of them because they saw that the military dictators were fighting communism, so-called the same as, as we call terrorists now. And, and so we were really supporting them. And I began to learn increasingly how many people will be uh, uh, really disappeared. I saw statistics that showed that throughout 1976, 300 people a year, a month, in Argentina were disappearing from their homes and never saw again. A lot of them were thrown into the ocean, it's, it's been pointed out. In 1977, I remember the figures were 180 per month, which was a horrendous figure. And, and later, of course, we had uh, reports of 30,000 in all maybe being disappeared, and we had specific names write from some of our representatives in Argentina, of 6,000 names. Uh, The next year, 1978, uh, we had the Panama Canal Treaty signing, and I invited all the leaders of Latin America to come to the White House to visit with me and and to help sign and witness the Panama Canal Treaties. And uh, Pinochet came from Chile, and and, uh, and, uh, also Videla came from Argentina. And I had a chance to talk to them directly about the abuses that they were perpetrating, and I have a little memo which was Deutsch has seen, uh, where I mentioned specifically uh, uh, an editor named uh, Hako Telman and the Deutsch family. And, and when I met with Videla privately, I, I specifically said these are innocent people; they are, they are news reporters and they are fine families, and I demand that they be be released. And, and of course, and they were, as a matter of fact. And and, they, and the same thing happened because I think that there was a difference in. Argentina that I soon discovered between Videla on the one hand, who, who was fairly sensitive about international uh, relations, he wanted military assistance from the United States because he was facing challenges from other sources, and um, and but on the other hand, somebody like the man in charge of the prison, whose name I think was General Mendez, Menendez, was a horribly abusive uh, person. So these were the kind of facts that we that we that we faced. And uh, I said, I, I wanted to have a human rights hero. I knew about Harding Carter's family in Mississippi, who had been a beacon light of enlightenment when we uh, had the Civil Rights Movement in the South. Uh, Harding Carter II was, uh, was an editor who was famous all over, all over America, and Harding had, had become the editor there, so, so I turned to Harding, and it was through Harding's... Fame as a, as a human rights defender, a civil rights defender in America, that I got to know Pat Darien, and I got both of them to come to the State Department, which is one of the best things that I ever did. And so I visited Pat Darien to be the uh, human rights uh, representative for me, and she eventually became Assistant Secretary of State, working with a man named Toddman, who was uh, also Assistant Secretary of State for that affairs. The first month I was in office, February of 1977, I ordered the the uh, that the, the, the military budget that was going to assistance that was going to Argentina be cut in half, actually cut for more than half. half, half. And when I did this, the Videla and his associates were so upset that they refused to accept any more military aid from us, which was very difficult for them. So that I, that was the first month I was in office, as a matter of fact. So so it was a very. Uh, broad ranging commitment of mine but I knew very quickly from reports from our embassy uh, and from news media that Argentina was becoming the worst abuser in this hemisphere so we had a, a, a national policy uh, supported by my Secretary of State and everyone else uh, bringing an end to this as much as we could and we did it by convincing the military that, that, that their policy was, was self defect self Suicidal that if they kept on, they would be isolated in the civilized world. And I think that ultimately did have an effect.
16: So that's a very important point that, that one way to to impact other governments who are committing policies that you abhor is to affect their own legitimacy and, and uh, explain to them how it will affect their own self-interest. You were able to do that. Yes, we condemn
17: them and cut off all their military aid. and And secondly, the next year in 1978, I gave an order to the World Bank and the IMF. We had that, that influence back in those days that they not, not give any loans or grants to Argentina as well. So we had economic and military pressure on them, as well as the castigation of them and their national reputation in the international community. It made them look like outcasts and and human rights abuses, which they abuses which they certainly were.
16: And you also, as president helped to construct and strengthen the entire inter-American human rights system, which includes both the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Yeah. Um, and you actually signed uh, a treaty, the American Convention on Human Rights, which helped to bring about the Human Rights Court, but we're not able to get it ratified by That's the right. U.S. Senate. Well, and, and even them. since then... Some other governments are now withdrawing. So I want to ask you not not only about what happened then, but do you think that it's important today in the hemisphere uh, this human rights system? Is it still essential? We don't have human rights. We don't have military dictatorships today. But and if it is important, what can we do about it when countries are withdrawing instead of joining?
17: Well, the last point you made is something I'd like to emphasize. There are no dictatorships left in Latin America now and only one in this whole hemisphere, and that would be Cuba. So, you know, the, the human rights policy had some major effect. But uh, in 1978, I, I asked uh, Vice President Mondale to work out a deal with the military dictators that would permit the, the human rights uh, organization, uh, an American human rights organization, to send uh, an investigator down there. And to my pleasant surprise, Videla agreed to let this investigator come down. I think they arrived there in March March or something like that, of 1979. And so when they did go down there, immediately, even before that, when Pat Darien first went down, uh, some of the policies in the prisons and some of the uh, numbers of disappeared people that were were killed or or put in prison and died uh, started to go down. So I think that the total... uh, Was was very effective, and and we still have the same kinds of uh, challenges in America. I didn't have much support in the U.S. Senate or the Congress for what we did. They thought that I was, you know, violating, uh, that I was naive, and that human rights should not be elevated to the top position. And as you probably remember, when President Reagan went into office, uh, his representative instead of Pat Darian was Gene Kirkpatrick. Who went down to tell the dictators in both Argentina and Chile, "You don't have to worry about America's human rights policy anymore. It's changed back the way it used to be." But anyway, we we still have that we still have that challenge uh, in the in American system because nowadays it's it's becoming increasingly apparent that the that the human rights organizations don't have the wide and strong support that existed in those times.
16: Yes. Well, I'd like to turn to um, Tex and to continue the conversation. Um, Tex, you were the human rights officer in the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Argentina. And as such, you were the face of the embassy on this issue. How were you able to help the victims seeking answers, especially about their missing loved ones?
2: I was part of a team, coach, You were the coach,
4: you set up the game plan, and and we were the executors
2: of that plan. Now the defensive line, we're talking soccer here, in Latin America called football, but we've just seen the World Cup so we can understand what's going on. The defenders were the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, the abuelas, the the family members who came to the embassy every day, uh, five days a week, reported to myself and one local assistant about the disappearance of their sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. I then was the midfielder, and I took that information and I kicked that downfield to Pat Darien, and she then in turn handed it off to Warren Christopher, who essentially made the policies And on the sidelines, I also work very closely with Bob Cox and others in the international journalism community to sensitize the world in terms of the facts. Because under the new Carter Human Rights Game Plan, which was diplomatically not done before, we told the world that the way other nations treated their own citizens was going to affect the relationship that we had with them. That was new. Thank you, sir.
16: (laughs) So Tex, you were a little bit of a loner um, in this, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, within the embassy, and with this with this new role, as you're saying, President Carter has also alluded to this. But did you feel you had the full support of the administration while you were trying to your best to help these
5: families?
2: Well, frankly, at the top, yes, everybody knew what the policy was. But when you uh, institute a new change in policy that had been the operating procedure for forever, people were very unhappy and they were very unhappy in the embassy. In the embassy I had two or three supporters, the legal attaché, FBI, um, the labor attaché, who was the friend of many labor leaders who were disappeared, not because they were terrorists, but because they were active unionists, and were thought to be commies. And, And so there were very few supporters, Pat Darien had real fights in Washington in the State Department because people thought that the only way the United States could really have long-term influence over the guys who made the bananas and the other things that we needed in the United States was to be friendly with the military who were the dominant, leading role in all these societies. So I had a few friends, but the main thing is I had friends at the top and their new system that the president put in place in terms of having a system that defined human rights and fought for human rights inside the Department of State and inside the U.S. government was critical. So,
17: Coach, thanks again. I <laughs> might add quickly that my Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, and my Deputy, Mark Christopher, were both fully committed to the same policy. Here, here, and, and, and Warren Christopher particularly, he was the guy who,
2: he was a, a, an outstanding jurist, uh, lawyer, and he held a court up on the seventh floor of the State Department. And Pat Darien and her troops came in, and they argued one side, and the geographic bureaus came in and argued the other side, and uh, Warren Christopher was the judge, and he decided, based on your policy.
16: So, Haunting Carter, besides, uh, in addition to being married to Pat Darien... <laughs> You (laughs)
13: were... Exactly. All Okay. Eventually.
16: Uh, You were also in the the system there that Tex was just talking about in the State Department as spokesperson and assistant secretary of state for public affairs. So the State Department was obviously concerned with advancing a number of important objectives simultaneously. And you had to face off the Soviets on a number of fronts, um, and including the expansion, perhaps, of Soviet influence in the American hemisphere, in the Western hemisphere, also trying to implement this new human rights policy. So what was the key challenge that you faced when it came to navigating this relationship, this difficult relationship, with a key ally, such as Argentina, in the Cold War, but also trying to implement this human rights policy?
7: Well, let's start with one Underlying proposition. The most extraordinary departure from American foreign policy in the history of this republic was the institution of a formal program of human rights dedicated to the proposition that those things that we thought were important about people and for people should be part of our international policy. That was a total first. Doesn't matter what people talk about little pieces here, little pieces there. The Carter policy was extraordinary. Second, because it was extraordinary, it armed those who wished to be armed, like my wife, with somewhat of a steel protection, at least for a while, because she was obviously speaking for the President of the United States in a policy about which he had been very clear. And let me be very clear, uh, I was a spokesman, I had about as much power as a gnat going up the side of a camel, but, but be that as it may, I had... Had a lot of contact with all those folks at State. May I just say for the record that some of the finest Foreign Service officers we've ever had were absolute bums on this subject. Absolute recalcitrant bombs. They believed in the old way of doing things. In that respect, they were very much like our fellow Southerners at the time of change about segregation. They absolutely said, I'm sorry, you can't run a society that way, but it's always been this way. And we're just going to have to keep giving these guys the arms and because we get to influence them. It didn't even matter that facts prove them wrong. That giving arms to the guys was not making things better. It was just giving them better armament to repress their own people. And the president point finally has just got to be said over and over again. Now, I can't tell you how virulent the
6: opposition was because it was in the
7: State Department. Okay, virulent, but uh, among some of the top people there. Not the political appointees, but others. And uh, but but what you have to know is that the president's point about every one of the republics uh, in Latin America, except for Cuba, at least on the surface being democratic, is a stunning statement all in itself. Not that any of them are particularly more perfect than we are these days, which is not a long way down the field. Uh, when it comes to the question of perfection about our own standards. But that's a stunning thing. And I'll just say one last thing. When the new administration was sworn in uh, down there and the Reagan people were in, and Pat went down to Buenos Aires to um, be herself, and George Bush, the elder, was vice president, he represented the United States, he was introduced and was booed. My wife was introduced <laughs> because those who were there knew perfectly well what it was. But uh, the rest of this is a gloss on the central point, which is you don't have what we had without Jimmy Carter. And the line I remember best is America did not invent human rights, human rights invented America. And he ran a policy on that proposition.
16: about how Pat personally handled this balancing act and the opposition that she faced. How did she overcome
7: that? Pat, uh, Mrs. Carter reminds me of this. She was uh, the steel magnolia. I mean, uh, one of the things that drove them crazy was they kept waiting for her to be the hysterical. Uh, as she would go in and face them down, either in the State Department or down south. And let me be clear about something, because a lot of you students don't know this. The president was not Johnny Wondo. Among the earliest things that he did was to make sure that it was understood how we felt about Sakharov, how we felt about Charter, whatever it was, 77, which made the New York Times furious. How dare you stir up the Russians? The president was consistent in this respect in a way that many people find very hard. And so the nature from the times about the Russian business of ruin relationships forever was not too far off from what the military and the diplomats were worrying about as human rights policy. But it was a representation of a fact that this is a global policy. And if you can't do it everywhere all the time, you can do it a hell of a lot more than we ever had. And you can adapt it. Um, it was very easy, and I mean this seriously, for Pat, armed with the knowledge that the world had, that what she was talking about, now if she carried it even further, than that, sometimes we were talking about it was okay, because she would look him in the eye, clearly look him in the eye, and most of those guys are not like a woman sitting there looking him in the eye, all right, that's just a fact, and say, you can't do this anymore. I'm sorry, the United States no longer tolerates this. Or she'd look at a couple of our assistant secretaries in the eye and say, I don't care what you were doing with policy in the past. I'm telling you, that's not the policy of the state. If you read some of the recorded testimony in their little archives, reminiscences about their careers, some of the most stunningly able guys at state as career foreign service officers are still vitriolic. Vitriolic because she would just announce a policy, say this is the way it is, and leave. Um, one of these days I wish that some of my fellow journalists had a chance to go for a tribunal down in Argentina, starting with Evans and Novak, who lied about everything at you could think of about what was going on uh,
16: down in Latin America, but I'm not. Mr. President. <laughs> All right, well, we'll turn to another journalist, uh, but more to your liking, I think, Hottie. Bob Cox, you were editor of the Buenos Aires Herald at the time and reported on the kidnappings, the torture, the murders of the government. And, in fact, you were detained briefly by the government. What motivated you to take this risk? To do this reporting that was so important to highlight, and bring to the attention of the world these
3: abuses. First of all, the, the country was in silence. These things were not being reported; they they, they were whispered about. And so the first thing that I set out to do was to find out what was happening. Simply as that. I mean, simple things in some ways. Like for example, I went to the Plaza major because I heard that people were gathering outside the government offices at midnight in order to get one of ten tickets which were given to meet a military officer, to find out what it, where their loved ones had been taken or gone and this was after desperately going everywhere they possibly could so we did fairly simple things and when I say we my wife was very much involved with it we did things like we heard that they were burning bodies in the crematorium in the cemetery which is in central Buenos Aires Chacarita. we went there After midnight, we saw smoke pouring out. Armed with this knowledge, our own knowledge, then there were strange things happened. I got, because of the newspaper, there was a, a funeral notice came in. There was a mistake in it. So we went out to find what had happened. And so I saw what was happening. It was this incredible country where everything was silent. People did not want to see what was happening. And I think, honestly, I recognize, and people say to me, why did you do what you did? I think because I was born in 1933. I grew up during the Blitz. My whole life was the, it opposed to this tremendous evil. And I recognized the reemergence of that evil in Argentina at that time. So did my wife, who is Argentine. And our problem then was to get the news out. And then you come along with a policy that tells me this is what, I'm an American citizen now and this is what America is about. You you showed the world what America is about and this is what America must remember, must repeat, must go on doing. It, it's, it's, and it's a universal thing. Human rights is universal. Now, you can't imagine what it's like to live in a country where fear, you mentioned fear and that is what happens. People get fearful and then they, they hate humans. People insulted me for the, my newspaper. And I was very lucky because I happened to be, gracious me, I, I, the owners of my newspaper at that time, by chance really, were in Charleston, South Carolina. Very conservative newspaper. Very conservative people who just would not put up what, with what was happening. They told me, do your job. And all I did, really as a journalist, was did my job. I did my absolute best to inform people. I, I discovered... Something very, very important because that has to do with diplomacy, it has to do with justice, it has to do with journalism. Journalism has to inform people what's happening. And when you inform what's happening, people do not disappear. But if you don't tell... And the newspapers and the... Of course, the newspapers did have a certain area of freedom, actually quite considerable freedom. And I think probably my final determination is that they decided they were with the military. They wanted exactly what you were talking about earlier on. They wanted a dictatorship. It's easy to live under a dictatorship for some people, but not if you love freedom. And so what happened in in, in the end was that thanks to the Carter policy, the killing stopped. Thanks to the Carter policy, I was able, because I, I had a text who I would he would tell me about things, I would tell him about things, I would decide whether I could publish something in the newspaper and the people would disappear. Many, many years afterwards, I have people come up to me and say, you saved my life. I didn't save their lives. I had a voice in the newspaper and I had backing. I was probably lucky that I was a foreigner, which is a terrible thing to have to admit, because I'd always thought, I, as I lived in Argentina, my children were born in Argentina, and I became part of Argentina, that I should have been a, natu- a naturalized Argentine. But all those things came together, and you can't imagine how for all of us to come here today and to to feel this sense of what we struggled to do in those years. And thanks to you, we were able to do what we were able to do, which was not enough. I wish we could have done so much more, all of us do. But thanks to that, this has all come together now. Now, You know, this is something that will stay forever. As everybody's been saying, if something started in Argentina with your policy in Argentina, that's really where the whole idea of human rights being not just part of of one nation's policy but every nation's policy of a universal policy human rights is universal and it covers everything and whenever you see people sneer about human rights watch out because they're looking to deprive you of your freedom they're looking to deprive you of of everything that you hold dear and um, yes it's an enormous pleasure to be sitting to excuse something I never
4: imagined But uh, I do
3: know that in Argentina, they put up photographs of you during the military regime. And probably, you know, it could have endangered their lives. And as for Patricia Derrien, I saw her in action. I saw her in action in Argentina. And she was just marvellous. I mean, she frightened frightened the generals. (laughs) Simply by being a great lady.
7: years ago this was? You're looking at us stumbling around. Not the president. Never stumbles around. But the three of us can barely walk straight. We were pretty young in those days. I look at those pictures and I think how young we were. And taking on a policy, thanks to the president, which was attacking every basic conviction about how you performed foreign policy in a world of big party, a big power
16: standoff We look almost good in those days. You do. It is amazing. It was nearly 40 years ago. And so we have a lot to thank these people for. And I want to conclude by asking each of them, starting with President Carter, to think about what are the lessons for today, for us in this world, for this U.S. government, how to balance the need to continue to preserve human rights and the protection of human rights when we also have fear national security interests that we want to address and that sometimes that fear can lead us to forget the human rights. What are the lessons from this story that could be applied today?
17: It's an unpleasant uh, answer I'm going to give. But um, back in those days, if you said that someone was a communist, they were uh, subject to persecution by their own government with American support. And now that communist label has been changed to terrorist. So if we identify any group that might be challenging our friends uh, as uh, terrorists, then they are looked upon as subhuman. I wrote an, uh, an editorial for the New York Times in, like in November, and I pointed out that out of 30 paragraphs in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the United States is violating 10 of them. And a lot of that uh, abuse of uh, Americans' rights to privacy and uh, killing people in uh, Yemen and and Pakistan, uh, American citizens with, with drones, and killing people who are not American citizens who've never been tried and found guilty and so forth. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we now do with uh, acceptance by the American people as justified. And and I think that the, the threat today is that we should look at the purity and the idealism and the moral standards of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as still binding on not only America but on all the countries in the world. So we have lowered our standards in the United States of America as well as uh, set an example for other abusers of people to say, well, if the United States can do it, I can do it. And I know a lot of that has come from the uh, terrorist attack on the Twin Towers and so forth, 9 11, but uh, we still, now need, I think it's time now for us to look back and say, how can we resume the role of a uh, nation in being the champion of human rights, not a violator of human
2: Get so scared of communist, godless communism in Argentina, or of terrorism in the United States, or in the UK, or any place, rational legislators, politicians do incredibly stupid, wrong things and and and
15: do them out of fear,
2: and those are wrong. Thank you, honey. That was once said of uh... A former
7: vice president that he couldn't chew gum and walk down the steps together. I would walk down the steps. We can do both things. It is absurd to say that we cannot conduct a vigorous human rights policy at the same time we conduct an vigorous engagement with those who would do damage to our citizens. But you've got to remember what proportion means, what is proportional, and declare a war on thugs is simply disproportionate, And to then go to a war of them as though they were the same as Moscow at the eve of World War III is ridiculous. We must be more mature than we are about how we deal with problems. We were not given a dispensation by God to be free of threat. We were given the intellectual and moral equipment to say we will not... Go crazy, because we're threatened.
3: It has a lot to do with information. If you can start to control information, and the information is not getting out, and the control in Argentina was almost total at one time, people will do the most appalling things. And even in the United States, I find myself making comparisons all the time, because things here have never been as bad, or could possibly be as bad as in Argentina. And, of course, Argentina was, was one of those useful because it was such an extreme case. I mean, the military thought they would get away with it. They thought that they could disappear people and that they, it would, life would go on afterwards and they were wrong about that. But they might have been right if it hadn't been for U.S. policy. So what we need is the information there. I, I think we're not getting information in the way that we should. I find myself sometimes, you know, we have, a, we have a cascade of information, but it, much of it is m- misinformation. I suppose, elementally, I, I think we should go back to the elements of, of, of journalism, which is is to dismiss the idea that there is no such thing as objectivity. We should try for objectivity. We should try to be impartial. We should do all those things that have gone out of fashion. That means old-fashioned journalism, I think. And we're old-fashioned people. And we might be wrong about that. <laughs> I have a feeling that we're not getting the information we should get. And Charlie? The official
5: report from the Democratic government after the dirty war was called Más. And except for the two apologists who you met in the film, we asked every person we interviewed in Argentina. In today, in today's world, when there are cell phones and uh, the Internet and all kinds of ways to communicate, could something like this happen? Can we truly say... Nunca más, never again. To a person, they said, no, we cannot. Even in the United States, you cannot say never again with 100% certainty because we thought something like this would never happen in Argentina.
16: There are so many issues raised just in these last comments, and unfortunately we have to draw to a close. So again, let's thank our panelists for a wonderful discussion and a wonderful Carter Center is a conversation with the Carters on Tuesday, September 16th. The president and Mrs. Carter will report on the most recent activities of the Carter Center and take your questions, which we didn't allow tonight. Tickets to attend the event here at the Carter Center in Atlanta can be purchased online beginning, excuse me, August 18th. The event will also be webcast. As you leave tonight, please exit through the doors at the back of the lobby. And again, thank you very much for joining us. Good night.
0: This has been a podcast from the Carter Center. Online
16: at cartercenter.org.